0: You know, when I was a little boy, I remember every Sunday turning in an offering envelope in Sunday school class, and you didn't just put your money in there. It had places. It had boxes on there that you would check that you had done certain things during the week. I believe that Checking those boxes was to make us feel good about ourselves. It would, for instance, one box would say present, check. On time, check. Offering, check. Bible reading, oops. (laughs) I forgot to read my Bible Friday night, and I'm sure that God can't be happy I'll do better next week. Attending worship, check. Hey, four out of five isn't bad. And there is something in us that likes to check boxes and fill in blanks because we have a problem with grace. We think that we have to do something to be accepted by God. For God to approve us, we like having a spiritual checklist to be able to say, if I do these six or seven things today, I can be right with God. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey writes, by instinct, I feel I must do something for God in order to be accepted. Legalism is a real temptation for the believer because we're wired to do something. We think by doing certain things, by doing certain things and not doing other things that we can earn God's favor and approval. You ask people what they must do to get to heaven and most will reply, be good. But the truth is, we already have God's favor, not because of anything we've done, but because of God's goodness and God's grace, which God has already shown toward us. In this Letter of Galatians. Paul has written this uh, letter to these believers in the area of Galatia because false teachers had infiltrated the churches and they demanded that all Christians had to become good Jews to really be saved. That meant no more work on Saturday, men had to be circumcised, no more pork these baby Christians were being misled to turn back to religious rules and rituals. And Paul was so upset about what was happening to these converts that he wrote this letter to try to knock some sense into their legalistic minds. In verses 8 through 11, Paul confronts the believers about defecting from the gospel of grace and turning back to the old religious principles they were governed by in their previous life. Basically, they were relapsing into their former state of slavery before they became sons and daughters of God. They were reverting back to a life of legalism, So look what Paul says here, beginning in verse 8. He said, Formerly, notice, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary, elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And here's what I want you to take from the text this morning. The Christian who is saved by grace must continually resist the pull of legalism that you once were enslaved to. If you've thought about turning back from the gospel, I want to encourage you to listen closely to Paul's counsel here in verses 8-11 through of Galatians 4. He gives three bits of advice, or there are three bits of advice here on not turning back, on not reverting back to your old life of legalism. First, notice Paul says you should resist the legalistic principles of your past. Now, look what he says in verse eight again. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Then skip, then look at uh, the second latter part of verse nine. He says, how can you turn back again to these weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. Remember what you were when you did not know God, before you experienced salvation by grace, you were enslaved to religious principles which only made you miserable because you failed to obey all the rules and observe all the rituals perfectly. Paul says, resist these things. They'll only make you miserable again. If Look, he says the same thing. Hold your place here in Galatians. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Paul wrote something similar here to the church at Colossae. I I think this was such a big deal to Paul. He wanted to make sure we got it. Look what he says in Colossians chapter 2, in verses 13 and 14. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So skip down to verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. But the substance, the reality, in other words, belongs to Christ. Paul says religious rules and rituals are only a shadow of things to come. A shadow, we know, is a one-dimensional outline of the real thing. You know, when you see a person's shadow on the ground, you know that that person, you may not be able to see them right away, but you notice their shadow approaching you, and you look at the shadow. Well, you would look foolish if all of a sudden you started talking to the shadow. No, you see the shadow and you know that there's a person right around the corner. And so when the person arrives, that's who you concentrate on. That's who you focus on, not the shadow. Paul says, you're you're as foolish going back to these elementary principles as if you were standing there and a person standing beside you and you're concentrating on the shadow of the person rather than the person himself. He said, that's that's how foolish it is to go back to these elementary principles. They are only shadows of the real thing. And friend, we know that Jesus is the real thing. To focus on spiritual shadows is to overlook Christ. So, Paul mentioned they had gone back to observing. Go back to, uh, to Galatians. Look again in verse 10. They had gone back to observing special days and months and seasons and years. Now, this referred to Jewish festivals such as Yom Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, uh, Passover, uh, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, Rosh Hashanah, and the Year of Jubilee. In addition, there were monthly festivals like the New Moon Celebration and special celebrations that took place every seven and fifty years. These were all important to the Jews. These were their holidays, their special days. But Paul called these days weak and worthless principles. Why? Because they enslave Christians. They were good in their time. They were served a purpose. Why? Because they pointed towards the real thing, which was Christ. But Christ is come. And Paul says... You don't need to worry about these days anymore, these observances. They were just shadows of the real thing, and the real thing is Christ. What does it mean today? There are some groups calling themselves Christians who observe Jewish laws, days, and festivals. Take the Seventh day Adventist, for example. These Folks, worship on Saturday, and they refrain from eating food forbidden in the Old Testament. Paul says in Colossians, as he does here in Galatians, let no one pass judgment on you with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Friend, listen, we have our own special holidays, legalism rears its head when we take our holidays more seriously than the things they commemorate now I'm gonna probably upset some of you this morning and I don't mean to I hope it's you see that it's the truth that's gonna upset you and not me personally I never intentionally try to upset people um, several years ago, I remember a couple left our church because I didn't, as a rule, preach Mother's Day messages or Father's Day messages. Now, I do once in a while, but you know that I do not do that every year It's not because I intentionally try to ignore the moms and the dads in the congregation. Not at all. It's just that I never want my preaching to be calendar-driven. God has called me to systematically and consistently teach the Bible verse by verse, line by line, precept upon precept. And so I preach through the books of the Bible. That doesn't mean that I don't think Mother's Day and Father's Day are important. I just think that moms and dads are more important than the days themselves. And so we do acknowledge those folks on those days. Now, I can further upset you by informing you that December 25th really wasn't the actual birth of Jesus. Some of you are in shock. <laughs> or <laughs> that our English word Easter comes from Astarte, which is an ancient pagan goddess. but I won't even chase those rabbits <laughs> because people are so sensitive about how they celebrate their holidays. Well, what's the point? For these religious holidays were only shadows. For instance, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, a spotless lamb was sacrificed for the forgiveness of the sins of the Israelites. It was a shadow. When Jesus came onto the scene, John the Baptist said in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No more shadows. Jesus is the light of the world that causes shadows. Sadly, the Jews kept chasing the shadows when the real lamb was right there in front of them. From when we start idolizing the holiday itself, rather than the truth behind the holiday, we can be guilty of chasing shadows as well. One more word as it relates to the Sabbath. A good number of Christians have the belief that somewhere in the Bible, Sunday became the Christian Sabbath. Through the years, there have been many Christians who have tried to treat Sunday like the Jewish Sabbath. It started back in the 4th century. The Roman Emperor Constantine outlawed work on the Day of the Sun, Sunday. But it wasn't for any religious reason. But later, that practice continued until the Roman Catholic Church adopted as part of their official dogma that God changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. And even after the Protestant Reformation, Christians still followed this unbiblical belief. The 17th century American Puritans then added even more to this day as the Sabbath. They established laws responsible for many of the false ideas about Sunday that have carried on even to today. For instance, it was the Puritans who gave us the old blue laws prohibiting certain businesses from opening on Sunday. Blue laws stipulated that stiff punishment was to be carried out for those who didn't attend church on Sunday, the Sabbath, swearing, dancing, wearing lacy clothes, blasphemy, and card playing. These were all prohibited along with other terrible sins. So, what day? Listen, I was telling Nancy the other day, we were riding down the road in the car, and I was thinking about my message and some of the things I said. I said, Listen, I grew up. Um, uh, you didn't go swimming on Sunday. You didn't cut the grass on Sunday. I can remember the first time I ever saw somebody cutting grass on Sunday. I thought, I thought Jesus was coming back right then. <laughs> I literally, seriously, I did. I thought that is terrible. Um, but that's the way I was raised. Nothing biblical about it. So what day is the Sabbath for Christians? Every day is the Sabbath. Friend, you and I are resting in the finished work of Christ seven days a week. We don't recognize a special day. If you do, then you may be leaning toward legalism we gather on Sunday the first day of the week like the earliest Christians because that was the day of the resurrection but Sunday never became the Christian Sabbath that you and I are commanded to observe then don't all of you rush out of here Because that doesn't mean at all that you shouldn't be in church on Sunday. What it means is, you ought to be here because you want to be here. You ought to be here because you know that when you come to church, you're going to get refreshed in your spirit. You're going to enjoy the worship of God with other believers. But it was never commanded by Scripture that Christians gather together on Sunday we gather on this day to honor our Lord and the fact that he was raised on the first day of the week from the dead. Here's the bottom line. If you choose to participate in any of these Christian holidays, make sure your motives are pure. Are you doing this to feel better about yourself or hoping to earn a few more brownie points with God? Or are you going into it with the pure motive of simply wanting to enter into a deeper intimacy with Christ? Just remember, no religious observance. Whether it's days or months or years, whether it's baptism, whether it's communion, whether it's fasting or Lent, none of that will improve your standing with God. You are as close to God, you are as accepted by God today as much if you're a believer as you ever will be. Those things are only meant to draw us into a re- that relationship and to see how important that relationship is to us. Friend, listen. None of that will improve your standing with God. Why? Because you can't improve on grace. You are already a blood bought child of god saved by grace and grace alone and you are fully accepted by god your father so you you remember you also in sunday school got all those pins that would go down your lapel that you per, for perfect attendance yeah i had them for a while and then i started slowly missing a sunday and you know my l- list my you know chain wasn't as long as some others, so I quit wearing it because I felt bad, you know, because they looked better with their long pins than my little short, you know, uh, uh, list of them. But uh, listen, I don't, it doesn't matter. Look, you ought to come to church, but don't come to church even if you come with perfect attendance. Don't come every Sunday thinking that by being here, somehow God's going to love you more than he already does. He's not. He loves you already as much as he could ever love you. That's the first thing I want you to see. Paul wanted them not. He says, look, resist the legalistic principles of your past. Second, remember that God knows you personally. If you're thinking about turning back, you need to think about how miserable you were when you tried to observe all those religious practices. And second, Paul says, and also remember, if you're thinking about turning back, remember that God knows you personally. When we turn back to our pre-conversion past, we are turning our backs on the only one who truly knows us. Paul says this is what the Galatians were doing formerly when they served those that by nature are not gods They were completely ignorant of God But now they've come to know God or rather they've come to be known by God look in verse the first part of verse 9 That word now indicates that they had not always known God Some of them had come from the Jewish religion. Some had come out of their other religious backgrounds Greek and Roman religion had the entire pantheon of gods and goddesses including Zeus and Neptune and Mercury and Aphrodite and Bacchus just to name a few but Paul claimed that these are not gods they are just cold dead statues the idea that God would know you intimately and you could know him totally was unheard of in that day before the gospel Hearing the gospel, these folks discovered that one could have a personal relationship with the one true and living God. In his prayer the night before he was crucified, Jesus prayed this in John 17, verse 3. He said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Friend, do you know Jesus? I'm not asking if you know about Jesus. Jesus. Do you know Jesus? You can know all the facts about Jesus' life, his birth, his death, his resurrection. You can know everything about his teaching ministry, all of his miracles he performed, the healings. You can know all of that without ever truly knowing Jesus. In Holly Springs, Mississippi, there is a man who claims that he is the world's greatest Elvis fan. His name is Paul McLeod. Paul has attended 120 Elvis concerts. He has hundreds of scrapbooks containing over a million references to Elvis Presley. He owns 55,000 records and CDs of Elvis. He named his only son Elvis. He renamed his home Graceland 2, T-O-O. And he opened it to the public for a price, of course, as a shrine to Elvis. His house is the number one tourist attraction for Japanese in Holly Springs. Seriously. Paul McLeod is obsessed with Elvis Presley. He knows every detail about Presley's life. But if you ask him if he ever met Elvis, he'll say the greatest regret of his life is he never met Elvis Presley. You see, Paul McLeod is an Elvis expert, but he doesn't know the man. I've known a lot of Jesus experts in my day. I mean, they got more Bibles than you can count. They've got books lining their shelves all about Jesus. Their walls may be decorated with pictures and crosses, but friend, that's not the same as knowing Jesus. In Matthew 7... We read where Jesus talked about how on Judgment Day, people will say, Lord, I did a lot of religious acts in your name. But Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. You see, a lot of people claim to know the good Lord or the man upstairs. But they don't know Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know him personally? Does he know you? Friend, I'm not bragging, but I can tell you I know Jesus. And I know he knows me. You may say, well, Rick, how can you know that for sure? How do you know for sure that you know Jesus? Because he's real to me. Matter of fact, I just spoke to him this morning. I know Jesus. Paul says, you and I need to understand that you formerly didn't know God before you heard the gospel and responded in faith to God's call to salvation. But since you gave your heart to Christ, God knows you. And the wonder of it is, you know Him. Listen, to be known by God, to have been chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, to be kept as the apple of his eye, to be hidden under the shadow of his wing, to have our name written in the Lamb's book of life, to know it's our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom, it would be utter foolishness to turn our back on so gracious a God. Paul says, don't turn back. Don't go back to those religious principles that made you miserable when you were trying to earn God's favor, when you were enslaved to legalism. God says, resist that. And if that's not enough, remember, God the Father knows you personally, and He has granted you the privilege and the honor of knowing Him. How? through Jesus Christ, his son. The last thing I want you to see, while Paul has exposed the core of the Galatians foolishness in turning back, he's not said everything he wants to say. There's one further reason why their turning back is crazy, and for Paul, it's a highly personal one. Third, you should respect those who've invested so much in your spiritual life. Look what Paul says in verse 11. He said, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Friend, this is much more than a sentimental appeal. Keep in mind, as an apostle to the Gentiles, Paul's life and ministry were tied to his converts. Only if they remain faithful will he consider himself a success in life and ministry. If they turn back... It would be very disappointing and discouraging to Paul. It would be a letdown. It would be the biggest defeat of his life. Paul said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he said, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy." Friend, because Paul had helped birth these Galatian believers, sometimes with great pain, he felt as if he they were his children and he were their spiritual parents. But now they're turning from the gospel and Paul can almost, it's as if he's saying, it's its like being a mother in labor, a mother who is about to give birth and feeling the pains of childbirth. Paul can remember some of the pains that he went through in birth birthing these people spiritually into the kingdom of God. And now it's as if all of that pain has come back to him. Mom, you know how painful it is to give birth. But nobody understands the pain more than a mother of a wayward child. And what that does to break your heart. Paul says, I am in such anguish. It's like a woman who has given birth to a child and now must watch as their teenage son or daughter turns against everything that I have ever tried to teach them. He says, in, look, skip down here in Galatians chapter 4. Look at verses 19 and 20. He said, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Friend, before you turn back, before you turn away from church and the Bible before you trade in the gospel and try making it to heaven on your own good works, think about those who have invested personally into your spiritual life. If you were blessed to be raised in a Christian home, remember your godly parents and grandparents. Remember all the times that they prayed for you. All the times that they took you to church and how steady their support and their encouragement has been. How significant have been the sacrifice, the sacrifices they have made for your sake. Remember all of those Sunday school teachers you've had through the years, the time and the energy they invested in teaching you God's Word and praying for you. Remember those youth leaders who spent time counseling you, who took time away from their own families to go on a weekend retreat or helped with a mission trip or a summer camp. Should you eventually abandon the faith and turn your back on God, you will in effect waste all of the investment that they have made in you. All the investment that is made in your life. You'll not only break hearts, You'll squander who knows how much spiritual labor undertaken on your behalf. If you forsake Jesus Christ and you turn back from God's gospel of grace, it will all have been in vain for you and others. On the other hand, when the temptation comes to turn, Think about your mom and your dad. Think about that Sunday school teacher, that relative, that friend who had such an impact on your life. And think about how heartbroken they will be if you turn your back on God now. Paul says, I feel that I have labored hard over you in vain. Don't ever let that one who loves you so much has invested so much in your life ever come to the point where they feel like I have labored over you in vain. Paul says, don't turn back. Keep your eyes on Jesus and keep on keeping on until that day when he comes back to take you home. You know, we used to sing a simple praise song that said, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. Three times I have decided to follow Jesus. The final part of each verse says it all. No turning back. No turning back. Turning back is not an option for the believer. For friend, there's only one way you can enter the kingdom of God. And that is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So therefore, my encouragement is stay the course. And don't let anyone force you or compel you or encourage you to turn back. Keep going forward in the grace of God. Let's pray.